The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode of the History of Literature is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, and MP3 player. That's audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. Okay, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. We've been getting a lot of great feedback from you listeners, and I'm so glad that you've chosen to join us today. We're trying. We're improving, even when we have setbacks. We keep going. Here's a setback. Well, I don't see it that way, but a lot of you might. There's a new podcast on the block, and it's getting all kinds of press and all kinds of downloads. You might know the one I'm talking about with the crazy southern town and the narrator who can't seem to figure things out quite as fast as the listeners do. What's the Oscar Wilde line? As you turn the pages, the suspense of the author is unbearable. In any case, it's a very compelling podcast, highly addictive and hugely popular. It rocketed to number one on the charts. And so you might be wondering, well, Jack... How does it feel to be number two? Hmm. Feels pretty good. I'm just... All right, let's get on with the show. We have Mark Twain today. Oh, man, what a great American author. We're going to be looking at his final days. I wish it was down in some crazy town, and he was a Southerner, too. We kind of forget about that sometimes. He was a Confederate soldier. Briefly, it was a disaster. We don't, we don't forget about his works being set in the South, I guess, but Twain himself, we see in San Francisco and New England, at least in the mind's eye, he traveled. He was a full American experiencing it all, a celebrity author. His story, The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County, was a runaway success and led to him being on tour, a speaking tour, where he read the story, and the crowds thronged to hear it, kind of like the poet Billy Collins today, except I don't think even Billy Collins gets paid, does he? Maybe he does at corporate events, if he does those. Anyway, people paid to hear Twain, and Twain delivered, all from a story. And even more than the story, his point of view, the narrative voice, the style, the humor... He's a very, very funny author, and much of it, not all, but much of it still comes through today. A humorous way of looking at the world and human beings. It's that voice that shines through, the faux-naive, the world-weary, the knowing, the merry, the smile tugging at the corner of his lips voice. Is there anyone you'd rather see in a saloon after a hard day's work? Out panning for gold, say? You walk into a saloon, you're going to have a shot of whiskey and a decent meal, some vittles. And there's Sam Clemens waiting for you. He's been running around for the newspaper all day, and he's got some stories to tell. Anyone better? I don't think so. And he got all of that onto the page. But here's the problem with satire. Decades pass, a lifetime goes by. 
hardships occur. You see a lot of people dying or suffering. And a satirical worldview can be harder to maintain. And the people around you don't get smarter. It's like teaching. You teach one full semester and you learn a bunch. And you grow with your students and your students learn what you're teaching them. And then they move on. And a fresh crop comes in. And you think, didn't we solve this problem already? Didn't we learn this just four months ago? But no. No, 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 no. You did, but they didn't. It's like my field of rocks, my job on the farm. I'm not, I'm not comparing the students to rocks. I'm talking about my job on the farm where I hauled rocks to the side of the field. At the end of the week of labor, I found out they don't just do that once. They do it every single spring. The winter and the cold weather. And the thawing turns up the churns up those rocks. Wow, that was a real lesson for me. And for a satirist, it's like you see politicians making mistakes, or business owners, or young men in love, or country folks, or pompous authors, newspaper editors, whoever it is you're trying to skewer. And when you're young, everyone laughs. You nailed them. You expose them. And then 10 years go by and they haven't changed. 20, 30, 40, they haven't changed. New people have taken their place. But those new people are just as bad. That's draining on a person. And the perspective has changed. When it's a young person, we think this person has ideas. They see the world for what it is. It's almost optimistic that they're pointing out all the problems. But when it's an older person looking back, we say, that poor old man gotten very curmudgeonly out there shouting how things were better in the old days. It's hard to age as a satirist. So we're going to start with Mark Twain at the end of his life to see how he lived out his final days because there's a great mystery here too, or at least I can tell it like it's a mystery. I can keep you in partial suspense. I'll make a big reveal early and then I'll hold a little bit back so we can enjoy this together. And our subject is a great one. Mark Twain, the great American author, looking back on his entire career, the critical reception he's known, and what he doesn't yet know, and the little-known story of his final days. Ah, Gar, we have some Mark Twain music. I don't know. We know what he, what music did Mark Twain like? We know what he hated. He hated opera. He thought opera was a lie. (laughs) Said people hum. What was the, what was the quote? There's, if you have 50 opera goers, one will be there because he actually likes the opera and 49 people will be trying to figure out how to like it. And the one will come along to show everyone else that they know all the arias. And then his quote was, Funerals of these people do not occur often enough. Okay, that's better. Yes. With the questionable trumpet player. Twain would approve, I think. 
great. So Mark Twain is like a lot of 19th century American authors where it's a little hard to separate them out from their 20th century and I guess now 21st century reputation. He was not unknown in his time like Emily Dickinson or Herman Melville. He was very well known. You see that in the obituaries. The idea is that by the time of his death in 1910, people couldn't imagine a literary landscape that he wasn't a part of. His voice, his fame, his presence were integral to the world of American letters. We've had some authors like that in my lifetime. John Updike is a good example. Can you imagine American literature without Updike? All those books, all those reviews, all those Stories in the New Yorker, all those interviews, all those Christmases with a hardcover John Updike book under the tree. It was the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. Even then, although obituaries would try to figure out his position and say, well, he wrote the rabbit books and A&P and Witches of Eastwick. And there was a sense, or at least I had a sense, Who knows if he'll be read a hundred years from now, and if so, what is it that people will read? We can't always predict. Not everyone said when Scott Fitzgerald died, well, we'll always have The Great Gatsby, that masterpiece of American literature. Some people did, some guessed. But it was also, the obituaries were also about the promise, unfulfilled promise. They had the whole life to reckon with, the fame, the celebrity, the doomed, wasting figure of Scott Fitzgerald. I heard some recordings the other day of Scott Fitzgerald reading Shakespeare and he's slurring his words and he has to start over. It's terrible. They never; Those recordings never made him any money. He was so desperate. All that played into the obituary. It wasn't just the, the hero, the writer of The Great Gatsby. It was too soon for that, too close. Back to Twain, and let's set up our mystery. So, we have Mark Twain in all his glory, famous for his humor. Even now, he's famous for his humor. Have a prize called the Mark Twain Prize, which is for funny people. He's famous for his wit, his incisiveness, his perspicacity, his marvelously inventive mind, his ingenious turn of phrase, and his skewering of pretense of all kinds. I could run through all his quotes or his top ten. Many of them are famous. Here's my favorite. His takedown of James Fenimore Cooper. Because in addition to commenting on society, on human nature, his phrases like everyone talks about the weather, but nobody ever does anything about it. That Mark Twain. In addition to that, he was like Edgar Allan Poe, an extremely good critic. He was engaged with literature. He could go right to the heart of a work and give you the reason why it was overrated. Here he is on James Fenimore Cooper, the author of The Last of the Mohicans. As a, his review starts out with three quotes praising Cooper. Then it says, quote, It seems to me that it was far from right for the professor of English literature at Yale, the professor of English literature in Columbia, and Wilkie Collins to deliver opinions on Cooper's literature without having read some of it. It would have been much more decorous to keep silent and let persons talk who have read Cooper. Cooper's art has some defects. 
in one place in Deerslayer, and in the restricted space of two-thirds of a page, Cooper has scored 114 offenses against literary art out of a possible 115. It breaks the record. End quote. Twain goes through the 19 rules governing art in the domain of romantic fiction and shows how Cooper breaks 18 of them. He cites particular details and passages, and by the end, you want to read nothing that Cooper ever wrote and everything Mark Twain ever has. It's a tour de force. Here he is describing Cooper's failures of invention. Quote, Cooper's gift in the way of invention was not a rich endowment, but such as it was, he liked to work it. He was pleased with the effects, and indeed he did some quite sweet things with it. In his little box of stage properties, he kept six or eight cunning devices, tricks, artifices for his savages and woodsmen to deceive and circumvent each other with, and he was never so happy as when he was working these innocent things and seeing them go. A favorite one was to make a moccasined person tread in the tracks of a moccasined enemy and thus hide his own trail. Cooper wore out barrels and barrels of moccasins in working that trick. Another stage property that he pulled out of his box pretty frequently was the broken twig. He prized his broken twig above all the rest of his effects and worked it the hardest. It is a restful chapter in any book of his when somebody doesn't step on a dry twig and alarm all the reds and whites for 200 yards around. Every time a Cooper person is in peril, and absolute silence is worth $4 a minute, he is sure to step on a dry twig. There may be a hundred other handier things to step on, but that wouldn't satisfy Cooper. Cooper requires him to turn out and find a dry twig, and if he can't do it, go and borrow one. End quote. There's also a wonderful extended passage where Twain takes Cooper's description of, of a stream and an Indian attack. A boat is being towed against the current of a stream, which narrows for no particular reason, and a sapling is arched over the top where six Indians are waiting. They're planning to drop onto the boat, and in particular onto the dwelling. That's part of the boat. And Twain shows that Cooper is so careless with his details, he basically creates this boat that's so enormous that there's only a foot of space on either side of the banks of the stream, which bends. Twain points out, Twain points out that, <laughs> that the boat is so big that Cooper's Indians, who Cooper always makes insane, they could have, instead of stretching the sapling over the, over the stream, they could have stood on the side of the banks and just stepped on board. <laughs> instead, they carry out their scheme of dangling from this sapling and then try to land on the boat, which is slow-moving. And so long it would take a full minute. Well, let me read the let me read the passage. Quote The ark is one hundred and forty feet long, the dwelling is ninety feet long. The idea of the Indians is to drop softly and secretly from the arched sapling to the dwelling as the ark creeps along under it at a, at the rate of a mile an hour, and butcher the family. It will take the ark a minute and a half to pass under. It will take the 90-foot dwelling a minute to pass under. Now then, what did the six Indians do? It would take you 30 years to guess, and even then you would have to give it up, I believe. Therefore, I will tell you what the Indians did. Their chief, a person of quite extraordinary intellect for a Cooper Indian, 
warily watched the canal boat as it squeezed along under him, and when he had got his calculations fine down to exactly the right shade, as he judged, he let go and dropped and missed the boat. That is actually what he did. He missed the house and landed in the stern of the scow. It was not much of a fall, yet it knocked him silly. He lay there unconscious. If the house had been 97 feet long, he would have made the trip. The error lay in the construction of the house. Cooper was no architect. There still remained in the roost five Indians. The boat has passed under and is now out of their reach. Let me explain what the five did. You would not be able to reason it out for yourself. Number one jumped for the boat, but fell in the water astern of it. Then, number two jumped for the boat, but fell in the water still further astern of it. Then, number three jumped for the boat and fell a good way astern of it. Then, number four jumped for the boat and fell in the water away astern. Then, even number five made a jump for the boat for he was a Cooper Indian. In that matter of intellect, the difference between a Cooper Indian and the Indian that stands in front of the cigar shop is not spacious. The scow episode is really a sublime burst of invention, but it does not thrill because the inaccuracy of details throw a sort of air of fictitiousness and general improbability over it. This comes of Cooper's inadequacy as observer. End quote. That's a taste of Twain and his criticism the fun, the humor, but at the end, the complete evisceration of the author. I don't need to go into Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. Those are classics that most people are familiar with, I think, especially Huckleberry Finn. Mark Twain is the true father of American literature, Eugene O'Neill said. And Faulkner, who may have had a few bourbons when he said this, agreed with him and said, Quote, Mark Twain is all of our grandfather, end quote. <laughs> and Hemingway said, All American literature comes from one book by Mark Twain called Huckleberry Finn. And that's how he's often viewed today. Wikipedia has Huck Finn in the first paragraph. Mark Twain, American humorist and author of the classic American novel Huckleberry Finn. Wouldn't that be how you'd write the sentence based on how we view Twain today? Then you'd go deeper. He was a steamboat captain and a journalist, and he wrote The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court and Life on the Mississippi. Maybe you'd mention The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County or Tramp Abroad. Maybe you'd run through the many famous sayings that he had, the one about the weather. I never let my schooling get in the way of my education or the one he popularized but actually attributed to Benjamin Disraeli. There are three kinds of lies, lies, damned lies, and statistics. Apparently the saying about the weather isn't one he actually said either. Just popularized it or said something similar. It's attributed to him. Here's one he did actually say in the telegram he sent after a newspaper mistakenly ran his obituary too early. The reports of my death, he wrote, have been greatly exaggerated. You'd get to those sayings if you were writing a, a mini-biography of Mark Twain. You'd get to those details about his life, his trip west after deserting the Confederate Army, his years as a newspaper man in San Francisco. 
his friendship with Bret Hart. But if you had to pick two today, two things for the first sentence, I think you'd say he was an American humorist and the author of Huckleberry Finn, I think. Not back then. Not in 1910 when he died. Obituaries barely mentioned Huckleberry Finn, and when they did, it was as part of the two books for kids, both Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. But the Many people by then had read and loved the energy of those books. People remembered fondly. But they talked more about Tom whitewashing the fence than they did about Huck and Jim on the raft. And the obituaries certainly weren't calling... Huck Finn is the forerunner of modern American literature. They weren't calling it a candidate for the great American novel. All that would come later. Instead, the obituaries talk about Twain as a literary celebrity and an innovator. He published the memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant. He sold his books on a subscription model, not in a bookstore. Sold by order. He was trying to make money as an author in creative ways. For us, that's kind of a footnote to Twain's life. For people of his era, it was essential to understanding Twain's importance. That was often talked about. Even the contemporary reviews of Huck Finn, I've read a lot of them trying to see how Huckleberry Finn was received in its day. And many of the comments are along the lines of, hey, this book isn't sold as bookstore at bookstores, just so you know, it's sold by subscription. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is that a trend? We need to watch. It reminds me of reviews today of a Netflix series or a podcast which says, hey, is they've decided to release all of them all at once. Is that good or bad? They're not getting the water cooler conversation that way. Is this where we're headed? Well, might be important for a contemporary review, but who will care 100 years from now as they watch Breaking Bad or The Wire House of Cards, or whatever it is they're watching. The means of delivery, the fact that it was on, wasn't on a network, was on a fringe cable network, or the fact that it was released all at once, that you had to subscribe to Hulu or Netflix to watch it. That won't matter all that much 100 years from now, right? And this obituary, there's a New York Times obituary that talks about Twain's life and his final days. It's an excellent read. It's a fascinating look, both at Twain and and how he was viewed in his in his day. One imagines that people were fascinated by Twain's life because Twain wasn't living like other people. He was a beloved celebrity. People felt the loss personally because they had known him, known who he was, what he stood for been a part of their lives. And so, like Prince or Michael Jackson or David Bowie or a movie star or something, we're kind of curious. Were there friends and loved ones nearby? Did they suffer? Were they visited by famous people at the end? What happened? It's a human set of questions. And this question, what were his last words? What were Mark Twain's last words? I won't keep you in suspense. His last word was Rosebud. Should I? Should I? <laughs> should I do my Orson Welles imitation? I don't do many imitations. I think I did a lusty lizard once early on, or what was that? An astronaut, something. But hey, 
Orson Welles, maybe I can do. We're both from Wisconsin, after all. Here we go. This is Orson Welles as Citizen Kane doing Rosebud as imitated by me, Jack Wilson. Not bad, right? Anyway, of course, that was Citizen Kane's last word. I'm not spoiling anything. It happens one minute into the movie. More to the point, Mark Twain's last words were actually, Give me my glasses. Get me my glasses. Why? Why would you want them? To read something? To write something? To see something? Well, let's cross two of those three options off the list. He wasn't trying to see something more clearly. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice if it was the face of his smiling grandchild, something like that, a baby? Wouldn't you want him to be putting on his glasses so he could gaze into the baby's eyes? But no. He was actually in mourning himself. His daughter had died not long before, and that's rough. That's rough on a parent. He took it hard. People close to him said that it sapped his strength and his will to live. We also know he was ill, heart disease. Here's the, here's the New York Times biography on smoking, which goes to show how early they knew about tobacco's ill effects, but also how much things have changed. Quote, It is certain to be recalled that Mark Twain was for more than 50 years an inveterate smoker, and the first conjecture of the layman would be that he had weakened his heart by overindulgence in tobacco. Dr. Halsey said tonight that he was unable to say that the angina pectoris from which Mark Twain died was in any way related to nicotine poisoning. Some constitutions, he said, seem immune from the effects of tobacco, and his was one of them. Yet it is true that since his illness began, the doctors had cut down Mark Twain's daily allowance of 20 cigars and countless pipes, to four cigars a day. End quote. Did you hear that? The layman might might have said it was tobacco, but the doctor's opinion was quite different. Some constitutions are immune from the effects, and his was one of them. That's science, ladies and gentlemen. Ah, <laughs> oh, poor Twain. We can cross off our list that he wanted to write something, too. He had given up writing. His illness no longer permitted it. He felt bad. He felt that death was imminent. I'm not going to make it, he said. I'm not going to survive. Reluctantly, he agreed to cut down on his smoking, but even then, he couldn't give up the habit of the gestures, waving his hand as if it held a cigar, clearing the smoke from his face. Isn't that sad? I I found that to be kind of sad. Ghost smoking. Get me my glasses. He couldn't even speak. At that point, he had to write down the words. He wanted to read a favorite book. I'll keep you in suspense there. That's our mystery. What book did he turn to in his final days there in 1910? What was popular then? A lot of books that have been forgotten today, but there are a few that haven't. The Wizard of Oz had been published in 1900. Maybe he was trying to catch up on that. Jack London's Call of the Wild was in 1903. Upton Sinclair's The Jungle in 1906. 
a book about William James, or by William James, Pragmatism. Of course, Henry James was publishing novels. Well, let's not get carried away with the speculation. That would have been a stretch. What was John Gardner's line about Henry James and Mark Twain? Something like, if you took Henry James's characters and forced Mark Twain to write about them, Twain would quickly maneuver them all into wells. <laughs> That's fantastic. A younger Twain might have read Henry James just to slay him with his pen. What did Twain like to read? We know this from a letter that he wrote to a fan. We know his reading list was a reverend who asked the esteemed author what books he would recommend to young readers and to adults. The reverend asked for good books for a boy and good books for a girl. And then, finally, for adults. We wouldn't ask it that way today, probably, to separate out boys and girls. But Twain's answer is pretty modern. Here's the answer in full. Dear Sir, I am just starting away from home and have no time to think the questions over and properly consider my answers. But I take a shot on the wing at the matter as follows. Question 1. Books for Boys. Macaulay. Plutarch. Grant's Memoirs. Crusoe, Arabian Nights, and Gulliver. Number two, the same for the girl after striking out Crusoe and substituting Tennyson. I can't answer number three in this sudden way. When one is going to choose 12 authors, for better, for worse, forsaking fathers and mothers to cling unto them and unto them alone until death shall them part, There is an awfulness about the responsibility that makes marriage with one mere individual and divorceable woman a sacrament sodden with levity by comparison. In my list, I know I should put Shakespeare and Browning and Carlyle, French Revolution only, Sir Thomas Mallory, King Arthur, Parkman's histories, a hundred of them if there were so many, Arabian Nights, Johnson, Boswell's, because I like to see that complacent old gasometer listen to himself talk, Jawed's Plato, and B.B., a book which I wrote some years ago, not for publication, but just for my own private reading. I should be sure of these, and I could add the other three, but I should want to hold the opportunity open a few years, so as to make no mistake. Truly yours, S.L. Clemens. That's a pretty good list. That's pretty good. You'll notice a few things. No Hawthorne or Whitman or Poe or any other Americans, except Grant's memoirs, which Twain himself published, and the private book he mentions, B.B. B. B period B period. What is B.B.? What book is that? Guess what? Historians don't know. They still don't know. They have some guesses. Breaking Bad, that's my personal guess. Did he write a book called Breaking Bad? Maybe maybe, maybe a, a school teacher figures out a way to purify opium, something? No. No, actually, no. Scholars think it refers to a, a body book that Twain wrote called 1601, an Elizabethan satire. That was too risque to publish under the censor, censorship laws then in effect. Some have called it the most famous book of forbidden pornography ever. But it's not really pornographic. Not like Edith Wharton's pornography. Oh, yes. 
Oh yes, if you if you didn't know, Edith Wharton, <laughs> Edith Wharton, maybe that should be an episode. I'd probably drive traffic through the roof, right? Back to number one, <laughs> except for Harry Potter. I've I've never topped those, and I never will. Anyway, historians of Twain think that the think the book sixteen oh one is what he was referring to, but they have no idea why he called it BB. My guess is it's something about bosoms or bollocks or both. But that's just informed speculation. The book itself is not so much titillating as scatological. It's funny, but not overly so. It's not a satire that's aged as well as some of Twain's other works. What has aged well? Huck Finn. Parts of it hasn't, but the part where Huck wrestles with his soul and decides he's going to hell, that's the part that sticks with everyone now. It sneaks up on you in this voice of this barely literate guy, this funny, unintentionally funny, idiot savant almost, a boy, a true boy. Tom Sawyer, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, was written in an author's voice, but Huck Finn is in Huck's voice. And Twain said that he just had to put his feet up and listen. He could hear the voice. It was like he was listening to a storyteller talk, which is great for the voice. It flows. It's kind of like Saul Bellow and Augie March, another book that's often called the Great American Novel. And Saul Bellow said the voice poured out of the skies like rain, and he just had to run around with buckets to catch it. So Twain's got this voice. He can tap into this voice, this storyteller. But he also shapes the narrative in a very artistic way from the very beginning, where he talks about the previous book, Tom Sawyer to the very ending when he talks about what it means to be civilized and Huck's going to head out for the territory. All that is Twain, the mature artist Twain, speaking to his reader and embedding his themes. And nowhere is Twain more powerful than in the passage where Huck wrestles with his soul and decides he's going to hell. And I'd say probably one out of every Ten contemporary reviews of Huck Finn mentioned it or even referred to it. Everyone else skipped right past it. They compared Huck Finn and the capers with Tom whitewashing the fence. For better or worse, it took a while for people to see the greatness of the achievement of Huckleberry Finn. Let's get back to our mystery. Was Twain reading either of the two American books, Grant's memoirs or his own private book, B.B.? No. What else is on there? Mostly history, it seems, or historical works. Plutarch, King Arthur, the Arabian Nights. Even Twain likes his history. Even when they're books of fantasy, there's a historical bent. I won't keep you in suspense any longer. The book that he turned to, the beloved book that he turned to last was on the list. It's one, a book he'd been reading and rereading for decades. Marked up the margins. And then, in his final days, he scrawled on the piece of paper, give me my glasses, because he wanted to turn to the book one last time. Carlyle's History of the French Revolution. Why? What did that book have that others didn't? You can see from Twain's list the kind of history that appealed to him. Boswell's Life of Johnson is a a very, very personal kind of biography. 
That book sets the scene. You are right there with those two and the group of people around Dr. Johnson. It's the kind of biography that a novelist would love. It's suffused with personality and liveliness and the energy of a biographer in love with his milieu, his subject. Shakespeare's like that too, and the King Arthur books. These are historical times which seem to have appealed to Twain, probably because they help him see things about the present, just as traveling to the West Coast helped him to see the South that he'd left behind, or traveling to Europe helped him to see America. Traveling in his mind to the Elizabethan era, or the world of Camelot, helped him to understand the society around him. And Grant's memoirs, too, are very personal. It's a very personal way of understanding the war. Carlyle's book is kind of amazing. It has an amazing history, its own amazing backstory. John Stuart Mill was supposed to write the book, A History of the French Revolution. He had a contract to do it. And then he got busy, and he couldn't complete all the projects that he was supposed to complete. But he had this contract out there and an anxious publisher pressing him. So what do you do if you're John Stuart Mill? Well, Mill found his friend Thomas Carlyle. And he said, hey, Carlyle, why don't you write a book about the French Revolution? Then I'll turn that in. That was his idea. Give the publisher Carlyle's book and all will be well. Carlyle wasn't sure, so Mill started sending him books about the French Revolution to whet his appetite, <laughs> just to prime the pump. Here's, here's, hey, here's a gift. Another book about the French Revolution. Finally, Carlyle jumped in and really took to the project, and he wrote and wrote, completely immersed, giving it his all. Finally finished the manuscript, sent it off to Mill. You know, here you go. My history of the French Revolution that I've just agonized over. Hope you like it. We know how. Books of history are, right? Full of sourced material and an even tone and a neutral stance. It's hard to get right. You need to stand on a solid bedrock of facts. Presumably, that's what that book was like. Years of labor had gone into it. So Mill takes the manuscript, the only copy, tucks it away somewhere in his house, and a maid thinking that it's a heap of trash, used the pages to start fires in the fireplace and burned up the whole manuscript. Gone. So Carlyle then, the historian Carlyle, the measured, workmanlike historian Carlyle, the Carlyle who, who wrote the book that John Stuart Mill didn't have the time to write, and the Carlyle who had sent the only copy of his book to John Stuart Mill, the man who somehow managed to keep it somewhere where his housemaid could confuse it and burn the whole thing up in the fireplace. No doubt kept John Stuart Mill nice and toasty as he worked on all those other projects that were not the history of the French Revolution. Well, poor Thomas Carlyle, desperate and suddenly bereft of years' worth of effort, suddenly immediately set to work in a frenzy and he rewrote the entire manuscript from memory. And so he wound up with a book 
that, as he put it, was, quote, directly and flamingly from the heart, end quote. Not measured and even when writing a book like that from the heart. What are you drawing upon? Adrenaline, anger, and passion. You're panicky and tired. Getting all that down, all that neutrality kind of goes out the window. You remember what outraged you when you were doing the research. Who's at fault here? Who said what? Who was to blame for this revolution? Who deserved praise? What the hell happened? That's how I imagine Carlyle thinking as he was scribbling away to recover the manuscript that had gone up in flames. He's recalling the passion of reading and thinking. Recall that as much or more than the experience of writing, than the actual things you had managed to get on the page. Recall what it was like to learn this, to figure it out, to feel like something about it was important. That's the book he wound up publishing. Dickens loved it. Twain loved it. Modern historians, not so much. But you could see where it appeals to novelists. It's about individuals. And Twain read the book for decades. It's about individuals affecting history. Individuals with their personalities and flaws and foibles and quirks and passions and decisions. Individuals shaping history. In Carlyle, Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI caused the revolution, or at least played an essential dramatic role. The emphasis is less on poverty or economics or other abstract concepts, less on unseen forces, and more on individuals saying things and doing things. People like those that Twain had looked upon all his life with suspicion. The book seems to have had an impact on Twain's view of history and how it worked. In a famous quote, Twain once said that Sir Walter Scott had caused the Civil War. It's a strong statement, and of course, he didn't mean that Scott was some kind of provocateur, but that people in the South had a view of chivalry or pride in their homeland that had come in large part from reading the novels of Sir Walter Scott which had resonated with them, even though, of course, they were talking about two different places. The attitude and the romance was what connected. Twain was horrified by the mob in Carlyle's book and the failure of journalists. And at some point in his life, he admired Napoleon. All this came from Carlyle. He later said, later later in life, he said he identified more with the rabble than he had when he first read the book. More of the fiery Jacobins than the more temperate Girondins. He identified in particular with the Sansculottes and Marat, the journalist who advocated for them until he was assassinated by the Girondins and became a martyr for the Jacobins. That's all interesting and, and argued about by scholars of Twain who want to place him on one side of history or another. With the agitators, one of the they have sympathies with proletariat. What's interesting to me is how much the history, Carlyle's history in particular, appealed to him as a writer, as a satirist. What does a satirist spend his life doing? Saying, this guy's an idiot, but that guy's all right. Or maybe it's, this guy's an idiot, but the rest of us are all right. 
Opera's crazy. Opera lovers should be shot. But hey, the rest of us are kind of foolish for trying so hard to learn about something that we can't stand. Right? What are we doing? Or you might say, why is everyone reading Cooper? Why are we all doing that? Why is a Yale professor talking about how wonderful Cooper is and how much he knows about the American frontier when actually, if anyone with common sense actually reads the book, they've all about laughing at how ridiculous his scenarios are. That's the work of a satirist, picking and choosing, finding out who deserves credit, who deserves blame, what's pretentious, what's not, the balloons that need popping. That's Twain's view of the world, but it's also his view of a writer's job. He told a story about one of his early lessons as a journalist. Twain had written a society piece about an important person coming to town, and that person happened to be the editor of a rival paper. And Twain wrote, John W. Blossom Esquire, the able editor of the Higginsville Thunderbolt and Battle Cry of Freedom, arrived in the city yesterday. He is stopping at the Van Buren house. And Twain's chief editor changed the sentence to read, That ass, Blossom, of the Higginsville Thunderbolt and Battle Cry of Freedom, is down here again sponging at the Van Buren. Now that is the way to write, said the editor. Peppery and to the point. Peppery and to the point. Directly and flamingly from the heart. The stories are about journalism and historiography, but they're also about people. They're about how you deal with people in your writing. Twain may have gotten curmudgeonly in his older years. That seems natural. When you're young, you satirize because you, you're convinced that the world will improve. When you're older, it just looks like things have gotten worse. You satirize the people, whether it's the leaders or the masses, but they don't get smarter. Even so, Twain's friends say that he was humane until the end, generous, friendly, giving. One of his final acts was to write out a check for $6,000, enough to build a new library in the town where he was living to be built in his daughter's name. And his last words, his very last words, get me my glasses. This man who many would say understood people better than anyone alive at the time was not satisfied that he did understand this man had more that he wanted to learn. He sought it in Carlisle. Why did that happen? Who made it happen? Why? Who? Why? That's how I imagine his last thoughts, his last questions. A little bit of who and an awful lot of why. <laughs> going to do it for this episode of the history of literature i hope you enjoyed it mark twain how many episodes should we do on mark twain so much fun such a rich and rewarding life such a great body of work and yet some pain there too some insight and some risk and some pain he's not just a man with a mustache on a stamp so i think we're 
done with all our business, as they say. Did we sell all our fish? Mark Twain's all over Audible, of course, including Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, the autobiography of Mark Twain, Life on the Mississippi, the short stories. Take your pick and tell them Jack sent you for your free audiobook download. And by tell them, I mean type in audibletrial.com slash HOL into your browser. Or you can find us at facebook.com. Send us an email at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. Thanks to my throngs of employees here at the studio. I couldn't do any of this without at least 50 of you. What podcast possibly could? I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.